Good morning, LBC Radio. This is Corey Rosen with the Story Podcast. Today I have on a special guest. But before that, I have some merchandise to show you. I have stickers that have the logo on it, and I have hoodies that you can buy with the logo on the front, and the first 50 guests on the back, and that includes our special guest today, Miss Ms. Kendra Bigley. Kendra Bigley earned her Bachelor of Music and Piano Performance from the Eastman School of Music, where she studied with Barry Snyder, Fernando Lares, and Jean Barr. Miss Ms. Bigley has built a career as a chamber musician, teacher, music director, vocal coach, and accompanist at such institutions as the Trust Performing Arts Center, Fulton Theater, Servant Stage Company, Opera Lancaster, Florida International University, Lancaster Bible College, and Temple University, where she is currently pursuing a master's degree in a collaborative piano opera coaching, studying with Charles Abramovic and Lambert Orcus with Temple with Temple or, or Opera Theater, Mrs. Bigley has been performed has performed in the recent productions of Debussy. Debussy's Go ahead and pronounce that one. Pelias et Melisande. And Mozart's Les Nozze de Figaro. At the Trust Performing Arts Center, Ms. Bigley has collaborated with artists including Carla Lurs, Amy Owens, Do- Doris Hogalati, Thomas Melaranza, and Samantha Hankey, Timothy Long, and Christopher Shee. Her favorite shows as music director and conductor include Working, Little Shop of Horrors, Little Women, My Fair Lady, The Music Man, and Titanic, for which she has won the regional op- <laughs> she won the regional Broadway Music Award for Best Music Director. Ms. Bigley lives in Lancaster City with her husband, sing- uh, singer, conductor, actor Robert Bigley. Oh my goodness, that was a mouthful. <laughs> that was a mouthful. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Good. So, what really started your journey as a musician when you uh, were a kid? My parents wanted each of us to have piano lessons. I was one of three girls, so we all took piano lessons. Is there any reason for uh, your mother wanting you guys to have piano lessons? I think it was viewed as the foundational instrument for music because you learn so much through studying the piano, learning to read both clefs, treble and bass clef, learning to read music. Yes. um, And it's just a foundational instrument. It's a really great instrument to start on. And they owned a piano, all of that. Awesome. So what did you do from there? What did you ever do recitals as a kid or was that just just a kind of a practice thing? I did annual recitals usually two or three times a year. I did festivals, competitions. Uh, yeah. So as I got older, I had the opportunity through competitions to play concerto with orchestra and it really opened up the piano opened up a lot of doors for me as a musician, just starting with that and pursuing that. And was there? You said you had three other sisters that did piano. Was there I ever? Was one of three. Mm-hmm. Was there ever little uh, competition between you guys, or not really? We each ended up finding our own thing. I was the only one who pursued piano at at a higher level, at a yeah professional level. So, what made you choose to pursue that piano at a higher level? I just loved it. I from the youngest age, my parents didn't have to urge me to practice. I, it was part of my day. It became part of my life. Um, in college, I heard a professor say that 
some people are pianists or call themselves a pianist because they play the piano. But um, but that I play the piano because I'm a pianist. And so I just discovered who I was, and that was that I'm a pianist. So what, you know, it's a hard press to find pianists to go to college for piano these days. What was it like back then to delve deep into the piano? Uh, what, how was the curriculum kind of different, if there was at all? So I went to a conservatory of music, which is a, is a different model than a university or a college. And you specialize in music at the undergraduate level, like other um, degrees would, or other focus or studies would um, would do that at the graduate level. Conservatory, you do that at the undergraduate level. So there was no core curriculum or gen eds. It was all music all day, very intense. Um, so I chose that path. I might have chosen a different path had I known some of the challenges with that and also just missing out on some of the fun of a of a university experience. But I will also say that it has opened a lot of doors for me, having that name, the Eastman School of Music, on my resume yeah, that's, means something to people who are looking for something certain. <laughs> that's one of the top uh, conservatories in the nation, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, what was it like um, going there? Where, where, did you ever feel like imposter syndrome, like you shouldn't be there, or were you on the level with everyone else? It was very challenging. I was from a small a small state as far as numbers. I was from Oregon, and I was one of the top pianists in, at that time coming from that state. And then I found myself in New York State um, <laughs> with a lot of you know the best pianists at that time, and I felt like a really small fish in a really big pond. I was not one of the top pianists in my class by any stretch of the imagination, and it was it was really challenging, really stressful. Um, yeah. So was it a lot of playing catch up for you? There was catch up. There was catch up for me technically um, and experientially. I had, I didn't have a lot of the life experience that many of the pianists in my class had. As far as the number of concerts they'd been to, the artists that they had heard and studied with and um, gone to summer festivals with. Um, yeah. So how does how does one catch up to such a uh, a, a gap between like where you were and where they were? How does one catch up to that? I don't know if you ever. I don't know if you catch up. I'm not sure if that's the goal. I think the goal is to reach your highest potential, mm. fulfill, you know, fulfill what you have, develop your skills, your talent to the greatest extent that you can um, so that you have something to say and you have something to offer. So it's less comparative as, and more um, what journey are you on? What path are you on? What do you have to say? What do you have to offer? And being able to develop the skills, the technique, the artistry to have something to offer. Mm. So what was your goals in that regard then? So it's funny going back and reading my college entrance essay. It's it kind of made me laugh. Um, I had great aspirations. I don't think that I really understood all that was required and all that that would entail. Um, but I wanted to be a, what I thought was a concert artist at that time. Um, about halfway through my experience at Eastman, I discovered collaborative piano and discovered that I really enjoyed collaborative, 
collaborating, making music with other people, whether they were instrumentalists or singers, much more than I enjoyed sitting alone on a stage playing solo piano music. Mm-hmm. So I did finish the performance degree because that is the foundational degree for a pianist. But then I wanted to pursue collaborative work outside of college. And uh, what does collaborative work mean for a pianist? It can. It's huge. Um, whereas solo piano is a very small piece of the professional pie, collaborative piano is almost everything else. It's accompanying and chamber music, coaching, teaching. Um, I, I <laughs> It can be w- playing weddings and funerals. It can be a rehearsal pianist for a theater company. It can be playing auditions for opera or theater. It's concertizing, making music with other people, which includes the whole rehearsal process all the way to the performance. Uh, so there's a lot that's involved, accompanying the choir, um, playing worship at church, lots of things. So uh, you get this degree, and what next? So I wanted to go to master's uh, graduate school for a master's degree in collaborative piano, but uh, I had other life things happen first. I got married and had children and deferred that graduate school until actually just this past year. So much later in life. So uh, where did your journey take you from from then, getting married, having kids? Where did yeah. that take you? So we, um, I, I got married to my husband, Robert, right out of undergrad. He was doing his master's work at Eastman. And we lived in Miami, Florida for a number of years. And I worked there as a staff pianist at the school where he was employed. I played for the choirs and the musical theater productions. And I played at church. Um, then we spent uh, a decade or so in the Seattle, Washington area. And I taught and I played at church. I didn't concertize really until the end of our time there. I gave a a couple of recitals. Um, I was focused on child rearing and we had decided to homeschool and that took a lot of my time and energy. So piano got put on the back burner for a number of years as far as playing concert music. And then we moved to Lancaster and to work at Lancaster Bible College and I started meeting people in the area here and getting connected. Actually, it wasn't, we probably lived here five or six years before anyone even knew that I was a pianist, oh, wow. um, which is a whole nother story. But then my name got out there and I started teaching and playing um, with all the institutions that you listed in that long <laughs> bio. <laughs> so what is it like to, you said you were a, a teacher was it your own private studio or was it through a different program? Yes, I had a large private studio for a number of years. Um, so that was a huge blessing to us financially um, to help supplement the family income. But I also really enjoyed teaching, especially small children. For a n- number of years, it was a great joy. <laughs> so what is it like to build a, a studio? Is it is it Do you do flyers? Do you do a lot of emails? Is it just word of mouth? What is it like? For me, it was just word of mouth. I did one time put an advertisement in some publication, but actually nothing ever came from that. It was always word of mouth, and there was always plenty of students. It was always just exactly the right number for that year that I needed, um, whether that was I needed a few more or I needed a few less, depending on the season that I was in. So it always worked out. It was a lot through church or the homeschool community. Um, yeah, so I never really was had to go looking for students. That's good. Once your name gets out there, people hear and they tell their friends, it seems that there is a lack, actually, of piano teachers. 
really? more people looking for a teacher than there are teachers available. That's that's that's, that's cool. Because mm-hmm. um, you had uh, we had talked and you had mentioned that maybe piano is kind of falling by the wayside a little bit. I do think that there are fewer students studying at least. That's sort of an, it's interesting because I know that there are students looking for teachers that have a hard time finding teachers um, at those beginning levels, but I think there are fewer students looking to pursue it at a higher level or to study in college mm. or to consider it as a profession. That's fair. I guess even I, uh, I wanted to play piano, but I never just pursued it higher than that because, well, first off, my fingers aren't well coordinated, <laughs> <laughs> but that takes a lot of practice, I know for sure. Um, what were some of the uh, techniques that you've really had to work on, struggle, or you maybe struggled with as a as a pianist? Um, <laughs> do you mean technical, like playing octaves, that kind of technique? Um, sure. Okay, well that would be one for me. Octaves are hard. Um, I don't, my hands aren't well suited, and now I have arthritis in my thumbs, so oh, no. that's really a challenge for me. I've been choosing repertoire actually based on that. So, um. I'm not sure that would be a technical thing. Um, big jumps sometimes are hard for me. I'm not sure I have the world's fastest reflexes. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure what else. How do you uh, protect your hands from getting injuries as as a pianist? Because I know that can happen a lot. Or at least with drummers, I know that happens a lot as well. It's really important to warm up properly and also to practice um, with uh, Relax, being relaxed when you practice. So if I am tense, if I am given a project that is technically challenging and I don't have sufficient time to prepare it, I will sort of cram. Mm. And there's usually tension involved with that and that will end up where I, I feel pain. I'll have tendonitis and I either have to play through that because I have to play the gig or I have to stop playing for a while until the inflammation resides. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm it sure. happens. Yeah, it's happened with me. I know uh, I have giant, giant hands, but so octaves are really easy for me. But I, if I tense up because I get really excited when I play, and I, I play hard, I know that. Um, if my posture's not right or something, I know my pinky or my wrist will start to feel achy mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I just have to stretch it out. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm horrible at posture. <laughs> I know posture is so important for piano playing, right? Right. Um, what are some of the challenges that you had to teach your students? In regards well, to like, I think, well, go ahead. I was, I was uh, just like staying still or teaching that posture or just ham- hammering in scales or something. I think the hardest thing to teach students is to practice slowly. So th- they have a sense of what the piece is supposed to sound like. And they can play it that fast probably with their hands separately. But the coordination of putting your hands together at a fast tempo is something that just takes the brain, it just takes a minute to connect. And if they can get it slowly, then the brain makes those connections and then they'll be able to do it faster and faster. But as long as you just are keep trying to do it fast and you never actually create that new neural connection, it's never going to be right. So that- you're just going to be playing it fast and wrong forever yes uh i have had that problem with uh percussion as well mm-hmm. and not not only piano uh i one time i tried to learn um the charlie brown uh oh what linus and lucy i think mm-hmm. it's called 
And, it's very uh, syncopated. Very syncopated. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's two different time signatures on, and or two different meters in one hand and the I other hand. I don't know that, but I, I know that it's very syncopated. Yeah. Uh, at least I've heard the first recording of it had to be two different people playing. Uh, one person playing the upper part and the other okay. person playing the lower part. Um, but I could be totally wrong in making that up. Uh, however, I know it's hard. <laughs> so I tried. And I tried and I tried. And I, st- I can kind of do it uh, now. Um, but with uh, I did one thing I really wanted to learn was Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And that's a fun uh, mm-hmm. piano riff to play. And I could not get it for the longest time. Because my hands would freeze up or I'd be like, what's going on? And then one day uh, I had to take it slow and it just clicked immediately. Right. And now I can play it as fast as I want. And people are often like, slow down, dude, because I get too excited. He's like, it's it's journey. It's don't stop believing. You're going <laughs> to. I love that song. Um, so slowing it down. How, how does one know an appropriate tempo to start at? It has to be slow enough that it's perfect. So I call it a glacial tempo sometimes. Sometimes I call it stupid slow because you <laughs> kind of feel stupid making yourself go that slow. But it has to be slow enough that you can actually process everything that needs to happen and it's perfect. And then as you repeat it, that will just become a little faster and a little faster. And before you know it, it's at the tempo that you want without really having to try and you've worked into that you've created neural circuitry that is going to be the same every time you play it mm-hmm. some people call it muscle memory muscle memory muscles don't actually have right their own brains <laughs> but it's a it's a brain to muscle connection that is memorized so how aggravating is that uh do you do that as well i do how ag- does that ever aggravate you it doesn't it just- i know that that's part of the learning process and um, there's an actually an excellent book called The Talent Code that explains this. I should know the author's name. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other books, but that just explains how the brain works, how the body works when you create a circuit and you repeat it. There's a product your body creates called myelin that wraps around that neural circuitry and allows you to send the signal faster and faster but you have to create the signal the signal Mm -hmm. has to be the same it has to be exactly what you want so it happens with a golf swing it happens right with a tennis serve um everything that is is a repeated motion and you have to create the perfect repeated motion so that every time you do it it's exactly the same and you can do it faster and faster and faster it's a test in patience Sure. Well, it's a discipline, and I don't think that a lot of um, students see music studies as a discipline. Um, We want it to be fun, and there are times when it can be fun, but it's also really hard work. Um, I think thinking of something as piano studies or vocal studies and treating it that way um, as a discipline that you have to work at is really important. If If you want to play at a, we'll say, professional or world-class level whether it's a sport or music anything that's like a high performance kind of thing yeah it's definitely or from my experience because I, I really want to get better at piano because that's what I, I gig around now and so I, I'm really trying to work on my scales and trying to figure out the fingerings for that 
uh, relearning all that stuff. Because, you know, I would just play the way it felt most natural. And oftentimes that's maybe not the right way to do it. Uh, so it, it's definitely a, an exercise, a discipline for sure, to sit down and not immediately play something you already know, but to uh, actively practice something that that you have done a million different times. But you have to, because in order to get better at it, you have to keep going. And sometimes it's just so frustrating for, for, for especially me, who's not, not very patient or just wants to do something new. Uh, just to go back and sit down and do... I remember doing the piano tests, and it was an exercise in futility for me. Because <laughs> I just wanted to make a new piece, or as, as a composer, I just wanted to do something else. Instead, I just had to... Both hands, uh, do the B-flat scale, do do the... C major is the easiest scale, in my opinion, um, because it's just very simple. But all the different fingerings really confused me a lot of the time. So... Besides teaching, what else did you do? You started getting involved in the local theaters, right? Good. Yeah, so there was a boys teacher at Lancaster Bible College that I worked with, and we developed the – oh, my, blank, my brain just went blank – the opera and musical theater workshop. And she was a local actress as well as a singer, and she was working at the Fulton Theater, and she gave them my name for a project that they were doing. And so that got my foot in the door, and I started playing for their auditions – and then another theater company heard about me. It was sort of like every time I would play something, somebody else would hear about me. Hmm. And I would play that, and then somebody else would hear about me. And so it sort of snowballed. And I, I worked with Prima Theater on a show, gosh, six, seven years ago called Chess, the musical. And um, I met a lot of theater people in the area through that. That opened up more doors and opportunities for me. So, yeah. So uh, at what point did you... But you start from uh, you went from playing piano to then conducting piano. Right. Into- so I started out as primarily rehearsal pianist, playing for the rehearsals, and then sometimes also playing for the shows if there was a piano required in the pit. Um, and then from rehearsal pianist, I was asked to do uh, music directing, which added vocal coaching and rehearsal, as well as rehearsal pianist. And that first show that I did was Little Women. That was the first show that I music directed. And they were using piano in the performance. And then from there, I was, that kind of the next step was to conduct. So rehearsal pianist, vocal coach, and conductor. So Titanic was the first show that I conducted. So what was it like to learn conducting? It was really fun. It was really fun. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I My husband is a professional conductor, and he teaches conducting. So I used his textbook, worked through the chapters of that, went to him for some coachings. Um, I had played in ensembles um, as a violinist. That was my second instrument, and I had sung in choirs, so I had worked under conductors. I had accompanied choirs, so I understood conducting. I had I had sat under a conductor, I guess is the best way to say it. And then I added some actual conducting studies, um, learned some skills and some technique. Um, yeah, so besides the basic patterns, my husband stressed the three fermati, the three ways to conduct a fermata. And so once I learned those, he said I was good to go. And I had a great experience. It was really fun. Yeah, I'm sure Dr. Bailey is an awesome teacher. He's a really fine conductor as well. And, yeah. well he does what yeah. his doctor's in, right? Yes. Conducting, yeah. yeah. So I, I'd hope so. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, what was your first gig as a conductor or music director? Servant Stage Company invited me to music direct and conduct their show Titanic. And it was a full, I think there were 24 instruments in the orchestra. And it was a really fantastic experience. It was a through, almost through composed musical, which is pretty rare, meaning that um, there's music going constantly yeah. under the dialogue. I think I timed one of the rehearsals and the, the times that I sat down added up to about three minutes over the course of the entire two and a half hour show. Um, so it was exhausting and it was a really hard one for it to be my first one um, because of all the underscoring and, and the things you have to keep track of when there's dialogue going and you're playing, you're conducting players um, to make the timing work out so that mm -hmm. you finish the music at the right moment when they finish their dialogue and you're ready to go immediately into the next song. That's crazy. It's it's, challenging. That's, that's probably a lot of vamping. A lot of vamping. A lot of vamping. So you have one or two or sometimes more bars that you're repeating as they're, as they're speaking their dialogue so that then you time it so that you finish those bars and go right into the next song when they start singing. That's crazy. I, I remember watching it, but I, I don't, I can, I'm surprised I don't remember all all of that. That I never sat down. Well, well not only <laughs> oh, that, but that it was through composed. That it was through composed yeah, the entire time. Almost completely. There was about three minutes of silence in that show. That's so crazy. That's a yeah, lot. A lot of music. It's more like an. I guess it's not like an opera. It at is. All, it is very much yeah, like yeah. an opera, and and many musical theater pieces are. Les Mis. Les Mis is, is very much yes. through composed, um, and there are others. Mm -hmm. So. What were um, besides the endurance part, uh, and the the watching the dialogue part? What what are some of the the challenges or uh, I guess goals of conducting a, a uh, not a choir uh, an orchestra in order to? I'm sure it's a lot of working out, a lot of issues. Well, I really I challenged myself to not just not just wave my stick and keep time. I really wanted to bring musicianship and artistry to it so mm -hmm. i challenged myself to cue entrances especially if i knew somebody had been sitting for a long time and they and if they're a solo instrument if they're you know they have a flute solo or an oboe solo or a trumpet solo and they it just they're counting their bars of rest but it gives them added confidence to just have that other person say yes it's now mm -hmm. and so i did challenge myself to give cues and felt like i achieved that and also to conduct dynamics and when they you know play loud or soft um, and yeah, bring phrasing, bring musicianship mm. to, so it's, um, not just what note do I play and when do I play it, but how, right. how should it sound? Yeah. So I did challenge myself to do that. There's a lot of complexity that can come with music besides just, oh, I should play this note at that time. It's not da, da, da. It's da, 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 da. Yes. Right. How should it be played? Mm -hmm. I can I remember Dr. Thorlickson just dee da da. He likes to do you know, dance around and and when, whenever he like demonstrates that, uh, but it, it is truly. And granted, when I was a, a student, I like rolled my eyes. But now that I've now that I'm like into it, I'm making my own music. Now I'm telling people <laughs> it goes no, it goes this way. And how can you mark that in the score? And right. knowing the limitations that composers have with markings, interpreting those markings to to figure out maybe there could be three different ways that this one marking could be interpreted and what mm. makes the most sense. And I'm sure uh, I'm sure that has helped you immensely in your piano playing. Conducting? Yeah. I haven't thought about that, to be perfectly honest. Well, I should give that some thought. Yeah, because, I mean, 
you're sitting there having to interpret music instead of playing it. You're now you now you're conducting it. So maybe that maybe has influenced your. I don't know. I definitely think that my piano studies influenced my conducting. Probably because because I developed musicianship to such a certain degree that aided in my conducting Mm. to make me a good conductor because I was a good musician. There's some things that just sort of, I think as a musician, so I bring that to my conducting. But I wonder if there's an inverse. Yeah, that I hadn't thought about. So uh, that, but that show that you were Titanic, you got uh, an award for. Yes, I did. How'd that work out? I don't know exactly how the regional Broadway music awards work, but I know that different shows are nominated. I'm not, that's the part I'm not sure about is how they're Mm -hmm. nominated, but they're nominated in various categories, just like the Oscars and the Tonys. There's different categories. And so there is a category for music director and then people vote. Hopefully they're seeing all of the shows, right? The Tony award the, the people who vote for the Tony Awards, they see every single Broadway show. Oh, really? Every single one. We have a friend who is a is on the Tony vote. She's a Tony voter. And so she sees every single show, um, whether she wants to or not, right? And so it's hard to know if the people voting actually saw the shows and are voting for me because they really did think I was the best music director or if they just saw my show and thought I did a great job. But either way, it was very... It was flattering and it was rewarding. And yeah. I'll I'll pull back the train a little bit because I, I do know it's open, uh, it's public, so it, I assume that it is largely just the public voting on whichever they they think was yes. the best. And and for better or for worse, that that's what ha- that's what happens. Right. Um. So what is it? What uh? Were you surprised at all? I was surprised because I didn't know that it was an option. Oh, really? I mean, it really did come out of nowhere for me. So it was, you know, wonderfully flattering. I know there's an aspect of it that is a popularity contest, but I also know that I did good work. Oh, yeah. And sure. I, so I felt really rewarded. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say that to, to uh, sound like I'm knocking you at all. Oh, no, I, no, no. I, I know I, I have were – you, were you the one who taught me or was it Joe Sherrick? I think it might have been both of you, actually. <laughs> Um, but I just knowing you, uh, you you definitely have the air of artistry and the air of professionalism that you deserve that reward. Oh, I'm sure you, you do. Uh, in <laughs> in order for me not to realize that it was through composer, you must have done such a great job. <laughs> it is nice it if you weren't even. It, it was if you're not aware of something. Sometimes that is a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so has how has that. Uh, has that given you any more notoriety? Any more? Uh, has that opened it up any more doors to you? Or? Honestly, I don't know. N- nobody has told me straight out that they're hiring me because they saw that I won that award. Mm. So I don't know. Well, it's, it's a cool little. It's, it's a cool, cool little, little thing. thing. You got a certificate, right? I think I do have a certificate somewhere. That's cool. It's 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 always fun to uh, take part in in the theater and then sometimes you get awards for it. Uh, now you get to say I'm an award winning an award winning compo- uh, conductor. conductor. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> Have you ever tried your hand at composing? Not unless I was required to for a course, mm. and that would have been a long time ago. I it wasn't something that um, came easily to me. I struggled. I mean, of course, this was. For those who know, who are listening, who have taken theory, this was for right. you know, counterpoint kind of 
compositions and it was challenging just to follow the rules and um, <laughs> parallels this and leading tones that and oh yeah um, so it was challenging um i didn't hate it but i wasn't it didn't come easily to me and it wasn't something that i was super eager to pursue i it took all of my time and energy to keep up with my piano studies mm. well, that's that's completely fair um but i, I wonder i wonder because being a pianist definitely helps com- it helps me compose for sure uh granted sometimes it limits me my composition because i'm such a limited pianist uh you know sam sam gross i do he is an amazing pianist and thusly so an amazing composer <laughs> Uh, so uh, some I don't envy him. I I I'm so proud of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because he he thinks of stuff. I like he I I love uh, working with some of the composers around here because I just think it's fun, and uh, the stuff he makes it's like, I would have never thought of that because I can't play the piano like that, so I can't write a piano piece, right? And as uh complex, uh, I can only play what I what I can play. You know what I mean? Right. So it's. It's so it's so interesting to me how how that works out. Uh, do you still uh, what what do you do now? Do you ha- or have you worked on other shows? Directed other shows? No. So I'm I've taken myself out of the theater work a little bit for the the last year or so. I and also teaching. I let attrition take its toll, so to mm. speak, on my studio because I wanted to pursue graduate work. Um, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned that earlier, I had wanted to go and get a master's degree in collaborative piano. So I'm doing that now at Temple University. I'm, I've just completed my first year of two years and collaborative piano is divided now. I don't know that it always was, but most universities are dividing it between instrumental and vocal. So I had really fallen in love with working with singers just Mm -hmm. through working with so much musical theater and choirs. There's something really special about the human voice um, and working with singers. Um, I also love languages. And when you work with um, classical singers, you work with a lot of languages, mainly German, French, and Italian, as well as English. When you get into opera, you sometimes add Russian and Czech. (laughs) And there's a third. Anyway, so, but the German, French, Italian, and English are the main languages. And so... At Temple, they divide between instrumental and vocal, and the vocal really has an opera focus. Mm. So I have a graduate assistantship with Temple Opera Theater, and I play for, they do an opera each semester, and I play for the rehearsal process, and then if there is a piano or keyboard part in for the pit orchestra, then I have played for that as well. So the, that was the two really hard to pronounce. The French one was WC, Pelias et Melisande, and um, it's a, it's a classic story, if you know the story of Pelias. Um, and so that was in French, and they chose to do it with two pianists, a two-piano reduction rather than an orchestra. So I was the primary pianist for that, and um, it was very challenging. I sure. n- never stopped playing, obviously, it's, for the entire opera. Um, which awesome Yeah, it was really that wonderful music. Sweet. And then um, – in the spring, we did Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, La Nozza di Figaro, mm-hmm. and that was Italian. And so um, there's, in, in this Italian opera, there it's a, very much like musical theater in this sense, that there's dialogue and song. The dialogue is sung, mm-hmm. and then that's called recitative, and it's mm-hmm. accompanied by continuo player, which was what I did. So on a harpsichord or pianoforte, mine was pianoforte, um, it's unconducted. So I'm watching the singer, and I'm playing 
some of what's written, but also I can improvise and add to the score. Cool. And that was a really, it was totally new to me and super fun. You can quote other parts of the opera. For instance, when one character walks on stage, I might quote from the aria that they sang in the last scene. Right, like, uh, like a little motif. Like a motif, yeah. exactly. Or um, there was one part where one of the characters said that someone went galloping off to Seville and I played da 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 And so you can like put little things in and and keep it contemporary, which was so much a part of opera at the time when it was composed, but now a lot of times people don't produce opera in that way. Yeah, because it's not classical. Or no, because um, I think that they've lost the sense that it was supposed to be contemporary. Uh, You're supposed to be using contemporary references. Um, not that the William Tell Archer is contemporary, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, anyway, or whoever that was, is that the Lone Ranger, whoever I was quoting. Um, yeah, so it's become, in some circles, a stuffy, old-fashioned art form. And it was never meant to be that. It was meant to be fun and contemporary. So anyway, that's what I did last semester. Next semester, so that we did French and Italian. So then, of course, the next two years need to be English and German. So in the fall, I will be working on an opera by a living American composer named Nico Muli. That's cool. Who wrote an opera based on true events that happened in the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, the FLDS, um, that explores the conflict between um, polygamy, which is illegal, and religious freedom, which their faith, oh, yeah. um, you know. It's Mormons, right? Well, it's a, it's a sect of Mormonism that's been disconnected from the Mormon church because the Mormon church no longer endorses polygamy, but FLDS does. So it's very interesting. Um, there was a Larry King live interview of several of the sister wives. And um, yeah, it's a fascinating, there's actually a new Netflix documentary called Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, something like that. Um, it's And that explores it. So this opera is based on that story. Hmm. And it's in English. And then in the spring, we'll be doing... Engelbert Humperdinck, the original Engelbert Humperdinck, not the Las Vegas pianist, but the German romantic composer, his Hansel and Gretel, which is in German. And there is no piano in the pit for that. So that will be the only opera that I don't actually participate in the performance. I hmm. just do the rehearsal process. That's that's so interesting. Uh, I'm sure that's that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. We rehearse five, six, seven, eight, nine. We rehearse about 14 hours a week. Um, in opera rehearsals, and that gets extended when we get the week before Tech Week. Obviously, course, yes. there's always more hours. And um, but the the singers are fantastic. They're graduate level masters um, in opera performance or vocal performance, and they're studying all these languages. And they have just fantastic teachers. And yeah, it's it's incredible to work with them. Sure, it's a lot of fun. Right. And then the other aspect of my degree program is to give six recitals. So I meet these singers through the opera program, and then I invite them to sing on recitals with me, or they ask me to accompany their graduate recital. Either way, it can work either way. That's you probably meet a lot of really cool people. I really do. It's been incredible to be part of a new community and make new friends and make art together. Yeah. So is that something? Um, here's a question: Why do you, did you want to get your master's? Is Right. So two reasons. One, it was a personal goal where I felt like my study wasn't complete. Mm. 
Mm. I still had work that I wanted to do and I still wanted to have somebody speaking into that work. And I also, so it was kind of a person, yeah, just personal goal. I was already working in the field that I wanted to be working in, but I wanted to work at a higher level with more expertise and more knowledge Mm. uh, and more confidence. And then developing my technique further as a pianist as well, language study, um, and then adding vocal coaching to the mix. So as I was working with singers, I was realizing that there were things that I could address, but I also could sense my own limitations and things that I thought I heard and I thought I might be able to help them with, but I wasn't really sure if I was right. So I wanted to just also explore that more at a higher level. I'm sure that's an interesting uh, pinpoint where where not only are you accompanying, but you can also hear some maybe some of the mistakes or uh, incorrections that might be uh, from the singing and then speaking to that as well. Right. So it's moving beyond just being a pianist, um, accompanying, and then vocal coaching. Right. Just tuning your ears to hear and be able to help a singer. A lot of times I'll be accompanying a singer and they'll ask me, what did you think about that note? Mm. And if I wasn't listening, I'd say, well, let's do it again because I was focusing on my own part. So then we'll go back and do it again and I'll, I'll tune in. So now I'm learning to just tune in all the time mm. because I am now prepared for singers to ask me that question. What is it like to uh, have to do your own, own maybe complex line and also listen in to someone else? It's extremely challenging. I'm sure. And one thing that I've learned is... To be able to do that, I have to know their part to such a degree that I can sing along in their language and play at the same time. So that's a lot of what my work now requires. So I not only am learning my part, I'm learning their vocal line, and I'm learning to s- that if I can sing their line along with playing my part, I will be able to hear what they're doing and be able to speak into that. I think it goes uh, without saying that that is a lot of talent. It's a lot of skill. A lot of, oh yeah, a it's lot of a skill. It's a lot yeah, of skill. Sure. It takes a lot of work. Uh, I like. I can barely uh, same going back to the journey piece. I can barely sing that and play the piano part at the same time. Forget another language that I don't even know. Right, adding the other language is like a whole other level. Right, exactly. Right. And then you have to worry about like the other languages' use of. Uh, vowels and and diphthongs and maybe right so we study diction yeah yeah and learning ipa which is the international phonetic alphabet so there's a symbol for every sound Mm -hmm. because some sounds don't have a letter yes yes it's like the a and the e combined make Um, a different sound yes yeah make a different sound than than uh, just the a A or just the e just the Mm -hmm. e uh, I, I took uh, voice lessons for one semester because I, as a composer, I I'd had found myself working with singers more and more often, and I, I wanted to be able to speak into, uh, uh you're you need to uh, fix your posture, or you need to reach deeper, or I want this kind of sound, or I want it to be more forward, or I want it to be more back in the throat, or like like stuff like that, just just simple terminology that I could really start to. Uh, incorporate into my compositions and into the performances just to make it that much better um and <laughs> oh my gosh is it's it a lot and <laughs> I'm not a singer or um I don't market myself as a singer anymore because I know that my uh pitching or my intonation 
isn't the best. So it's always sometimes I find myself uh, being a hypocritical to myself <laughs> because I'm like I'm like telling them, hey, you're not hitting that right. But then they're like, well, you do it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I can't. That's why I hired you. <laughs> gotcha. So it, you stepped away from theater. Is your goal to come back to theater or, is, or do you want to do more of the I guess you're still kind of doing theater with it being opera. Mm-hmm. Opera is a is a musical theater, yeah. right? It, yeah. A form of theater that is musical. Uh, a dramatic art. How's that? Yes. So I am not. I'm trying not to be. Well, I'm not being pragmatic about the degree program. Mm. I'm not in the degree program because of some specific outcome. I have some ideas of what might come out of it. Um, mostly to continue to do what I've been doing, but with greater skill, greater experience. Um, I think there might be some doors that will open for me because of the master's degree and because of the skills that I've gained. So that's just yet to be seen. Um, I think I will do more coaching than Mm -hmm. I had been doing before. Um, or the company that I, the, the level of accompanying that I was doing will start to include more coaching. It's probably a better way to put it. Gotcha. That's vocal coaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did your love for vocal coaching come from? Like I said, working with the singers that I was working with, um, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of that was in, in the theater productions I was doing, but most of it, uh, equally if not more, was um, working as an accompanist in the vocal studios at Lancaster Bible College. Mm-hmm because we place a live pianist in every voice lesson. Um, and then I would meet with those students sometimes outside of voice lessons for rehearsals and recital preparation and things like that. Um, I just fell in love with that music, mm-hmm. art songs. Um, working with the human voice, breath is really special. Um, languages, all of that. So I, I do enjoy instrumental chamber music. The repertoire is amazing to play a piano quintet or quartet or trio um, or a horn trio, um, which I have done. But I just found myself when you have to choose, as you do at the graduate level, gravitating, gravitating toward the voice. So you mentioned uh, be, being the accompanist to many uh, students here at mm-hmm. Lancaster Bible College. What was it like to... Cause I'm making assumptions, correct me if I'm wrong, but what was it like to become sort of like a mentor to those? Because I know a lot of things happen in, in the in the studio room where people like sometimes break down and there's a lot of tears, there's a lot of fears. Of being, What was it like to become a mentor more than just an accompanist, but a mentor to some of those students, if you ever did? Well, we do. I think that pianists and singers do form a special bond and – there's um, trust that has to be built. So it depends. The The level of mentorship really depends on how long I've been working with a singer. Um, it also depends on how much the vocal teacher wants my input. Mm. Um, and some teachers value that more than others. Um, I wouldn't say that any of them don't value it at all. Just some of them seek that and will ask me in the lesson. Um, I try very hard in the lesson not to speak and less spoken to um let the teacher direct the lesson um and then if they ask me um sometimes i can be helpful though in catching a mistake that the teacher isn't catching because they are focused on specific 
things with vocal technique. Mm. So they might not catch that there's a wrong note or a wrong word, and I can just sort of chime in and say, that melody line actually isn't quite accurate. And then they're usually very appreciative. As long as they don't disrupt the flow of the lesson too much. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I, Oh, I'll just, and back to your question about mentorship. So the students that I was able to work with long, over a longer period of time, and especially if I was able to develop their senior recital with them, there's more, that requires more rehearsal hours outside of the studio lesson. Um, it's really rewarding. Um, and there is give and take. And I try to encourage them to develop their their sense of vision for a piece, their sense of artistry, and let it really be a collaborative process. And also sort of help them to see that it is collaborative if they don't see that. Mm. Right? So it's not just that they're the star and I'm going to follow them. Um I don't use that word because when you follow someone, you're behind. And right. as a pianist, you never want to be behind. Oh, so, right, what is the what is the collaborative aspect of this piece and, and how can we achieve that together? My professor at Temple says that an art song is one piece of music that requires two people to perform it. So it isn't just the singer and then the behind the potted plant pianist. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that's that's... that's yeah, you're right. <laughs> or I'm even a, or that, yeah. even you know a sonata for piano and violin. Right. And I do say for piano and violin, not for violin and piano, because Mozart and Beethoven actually published their sonatas that way. Sonata for piano and violin. It's one piece that requires two musicians to perform it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to talk more about uh, the faith aspect in your life. Yes. You are a Christian. I am a Christian. Um, how has your faith influenced the music you play, the decisions you make, uh, or even like going back to school? It, it has mm -hmm. it played a part? I'm sure it has. Uh, talk to me about it. Okay. So it's multifaceted. Yes. Um, it's hard sometimes to know where to start in talking about that because I have integrated my faith into my life. And mm. so... Let's start with where your faith started then. I started, uh, yeah, I was a small child when I came to faith in Christ. And it was a, a child's faith that has grown with me through the years. And as different trials come, my faith has grown. Um, so I think that I have a more mature faith now than I had <laughs> when I first came to Christ. But I would say that I've never known life without Jesus as my savior. Mm. Um, so that's, and, and then one of the areas that have really grown or sought to grow in is integrating faith and life. And then also removing what I would call the, um, sacred secular dichotomy mm. so that there is no, there is nothing in creation over which God does not declare. This is mine. I probably misquoting who said that, but all of all of life is sacred so my work is a sacred work my work is an act of worship um, we do all things as unto the lord with excellence so that has informed how i how i approach my work as a pianist um i have i have sought to reach a certain level of excellence so that I could work at the at the highest level and reach a people that might you might categorize as an unreached people group, Western classical musicians. <laughs> um, 
So my music itself is not the thing that is going to share the love of Christ with them. Mm. My music, my work as a pianist is my path, my entrance, my avenue into a segment of society with which I hope to share the love of Christ through building relationships. Robin, Robert, my husband and I, we, we call it the green room gospel. And in the green room of life is where in our lives, it's an actual green room, <laughs> right? Which is the room, if, if our listeners don't know, where you wait off stage. It doesn't have to be painted green, but where we wait before we go on stage. Um, or we go out afterward with the musicians. We often will eat after a performance because few, few artists want to eat before they perform because we're nervous, right? right? So um, building relationships. So the music is my entrance it's my platform it's the way i get in the door and i have to be good enough to get in the door mm. that's where then i have the opportunity life on life build relationships um to share share my faith if i have that opportunity it's uh always been interesting when i tell other christians hey i, I go out to bars and play music because people are immediately like you do what and you're calling yourself a christian uh, but but it's that's that's where I find myself being pulled towards. Is granted, I don't drink at all because personal reasons, and I just hate the taste of alcohol. So, uh, so I'm I don't do drugs, even though that's prolific within the gigging music musician right. scene. Um, it's a lot of you're right. It's being good enough to break into that circle, and then from there, because there's a ton of broken people in the world, especially in the bar scene. If you're going out to listen to music, there's a ton of broken people uh, trying to get rid of their problems, and it, it's a that's where I find myself uh, playing music and making those really deep connections that you know sometimes that you can really help somebody just by talking to them and just figuring because no no one else has taken the time to really talk to them and figure out why are they feeling this way or may or give them the perspective that they need to in order to help move on or feel better or to because this world is such a deal with it later than deal with it now or deal with it unhealthily than get, getting yourself together and going forward so it's it's been you're right for a musician a christian musician the way to get into that door is your talent or your skill and that's how God uses you to get into the people that really need to hear his gospel. Right. So what does, uh, a lot of prayer comes into that, right? Yes. I, <laughs> I, I'll say also along those lines, um, that something that, that I'm passionate about and that Robert and I, when we were young married, we were, Reading a lot of books, there's um, one that was really formational for us by Rob Reiner, who was a an ABC producer. Mm. He was award-winning producer for ABC's Wide World of Sports for decades. Um, and he saw when he was graduating high school that his church was praying over and sending the seniors that were graduating who were going into full-time ministry or missions. And he sort of got a slap on the back because he was headed off to Hollywood and don't lose your faith. Yes. And um, we became passionate as artist educators about instilling in our students a sense of mission, that which is just exactly what we were just talking about. Um, 
But prayer is really important because it is always, I guess, a danger or a temptation to get sucked into what you're describing, the the world. Um, and I think that the church can do more to support um, and to to equip and to support there's the young people who are going out into the world their mission is just as vital it's the same kingdom mm-hmm. it's the same kingdom call um to be salt and light in their world so that's something that we're really passionate about and um that we strive to pass on to our students and then even after graduation we have um we try to keep up with students whether it's we meet with them, we go out for coffee or have them into our home or we tra- if we travel to an area where they live, if they're in New York City or wherever they're living in Chicago, we've visited former students and, um, and to encourage them in their faith and in their work because a lot of times it's lonely and it's mm-hmm. super important. The other thing that we encourage them is that wherever you go, you need to be part of a local body. You need to be built up in your faith. Um, you need to be growing. You need Christian fellowship to support you because it's Hard. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian, and you, if you're working in the world, uh, the kind of world that you just described, um, yeah. So those are some of the things that we're passionate about that we've worked in our marriage as artist educators um, with our students, and even after they graduate. In that book, I believe it was called Roaring Lambs. Roaring Lambs. So yeah, that's because uh, it's taking your uh, profession in a, in a way that the church might not seem fit. Right. Depending on your church. Depending on your church, yes. There's often again that sacred secular dichotomy. There's a there's a view that um, that ministry, full time ministry, is a calling, mm-hmm. and there are other vocational callings that are also you know kingdom work. Yeah. So the other thing that we came up against a lot was this idea that if um, if a student was a musician, that they would often be told that um, the best way they could serve the Lord was to to be a church musician, <laughs> right? And yet we don't tell the math genius in our churches that the best way they can serve the church is to be the church accountant, or, right? Mm, so yeah. um, musicians are, I think, they're s- separated somehow as if it's different from any other vocational calling. art, And not just musicians, artists, performing artists. So um, yeah, that's something else that we've been passionate about um, encouraging our children if they had a, a desire to go into some sort of a an art career, performing art, or it happens with visual artists too. Um, there's no such thing as Christian music. There's no such thing as Christian art. <laughs> there's Christian lyrics, mm-hmm. right? Um, but music is an area of common grace. God causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. And I haven't ever distinguished between music written by someone who claims Christ and someone who doesn't. If it's excellent music, then I, then it's excellent music. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, you had talked about playing like Bach or Beethoven um, and quote unquote secular music that brings glory to God. Mm-hmm. So Bach was a a Christ follower and he was a, also a, he was a church musician yes. he wrote a lot of sacred music he also wrote music that wasn't specifically sacred but he signed all of his manuscripts DSG SDG Soli Deo Gloria and um, he wanted all of his music to be in his heart it was for the glory of God mm-hmm. um, 
But then you take an artist like Brahms, a composer who who didn't claim Christ or faith in Christ, um, and his music is incredible. And um, yeah, I, I would not play his music simply because that's what I mean by it. there's no Christian right. music, right? Is it good music? And there are other criteria to measure whether it's good music or not. Mm-hmm. That gets sticky, by the way. But, yeah, oh, yeah. for sure. It definitely does, especially when you get into songs with lyrics in it. Right. <laughs> um, so some final questions. We're kind of wrapping up this episode, so I want to get some final questions in. Um, you work with a lot of high-quality top musicians, uh, one of them including uh, a Grammy Award winner, Miss, Miss uh, Doris Hoglotti. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it like to – that, was that ever stressful for you, or is that is that like – goodness or is that just like a, just a bunch of ton of fun yes and yes okay <laughs> um i have been extremely fortunate uh through connections at eastman and connections at the trust performing arts center to have been able to perform with some really incredible artists internationally renowned artists um it's very stressful but it's incredibly rewarding. It's stressful because I know that people are paying money to come right. and hear this artist. And um, but it's so rewarding when you when you collaborate with an artist at that level, they bring out something in you. They challenge you to play at an even and I start hearing things that I hadn't heard before. Even another pianist, I played a four hands piece with Chris Shi on one of the gala opening gala events at the trust. And he's a Van Cliburn International Piano Competition pianist, and um, which is like the Olympics for pianists. Oh, it, wow. it only happens every four years. You have to be invited based on work that you've done. And um, so he lives and works here in Lancaster. He's a gastroenterologist. Um, but he competed in this international piano competition. And, and then, yeah, he's just fantastic. So anyway, I got to perform with him. And just listening to how he plays as I'm playing with him, it brought out artistry in my playing. It brought me to another level. Or if I play with, uh, you mentioned Doris Halgalati, the sound that she creates on her clarinet and the mm-hmm. line that she creates with her breath, um, yeah, it inspires another, it just brings the music to another level and I get to enter into that. And so it challenges me as an artist to be even better. Super fun. So with, with all of this uh, notoriety, one can get uh, quite big-headed or they can be uh, kind of put in a spiral almost. Has that ever been a problem for you? or I don't, I don't think so. I think I have a pretty good sense of where I fall in the pecking order, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's pretty important. <laughs> Um, for people to sort of have an affair, uh, an awareness of where their skills lie and where the limitations are. Um, I know how long it takes me to prepare a concert. If I'm asked to play something and I know that there's not enough time for me to prepare that, then I'm not going to accept that gig, Mm. if that makes sense. Um, because I know how long, I know what my limitations are. Or if I look at the, at the music and I realize that just technically that's not going to be something that is going to be within my capability. So mm. I think that's really important. Um, I just feel incredibly lucky, fortunate, grateful, um, blessed to have been able to 
to perform with some of the people that you read off in that bio. And um, it doesn't make me big headed. I, I, I know I'm just a little old me. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's just a blast, to be honest. It's just really fun whenever I have the opportunity. Good. Uh, so outside of, of Christ, what keeps you grounded? Or what, who is your biggest support? Well, my family is my biggest support, to be sure. My husband, Robert, my kids, Danica, Derek, and Delaney. Um, my parents have been a huge support, putting me through school, encouraging me all along the way. Um, yeah. And then I have, I have friends. Um, I have some key female friends who have really encouraged me through the years. One is named Laura McCollum, Dr. Laura McCollum. And she's just been a huge cheerleader for me and other women who, um, have achieved great in my mind great things um who have encouraged me at at my stage of life to to keep going it's not too late you you got this because it is hard to go back in one when one is 50 to graduate school and technology has moved on and Mm -hmm. um you know i'm not at the peak of my technical facility that i was in my 20s and all of those things um i have arthritis now my brain is slower you know all of it um, and so I do, I have some incredible people in my life who've been great supports to me. Did you ever get a chance to work with the scene collective? No, I know what you're speaking of. And, um, I actually was asked to fill in when their pianist was sick one time and I wasn't available. I, I gave them Ellie Green's name and mm-hmm. she was a great fit. Um, I may still someday work with them. That's Kristen Brewer's yes. passion project and it's a wonderful work. I love the work she's doing. Yeah, if you haven't checked that, uh, I'm actually going to have her on next Friday, Fantastic. I do believe. So uh, if you want to hear more about her, check, tune in then. She's got she's she's also the writer of Sight and Sound. Uh, right she now. is one yeah, of the writers. Oh, so, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, yes, one of the writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to you. Uh, what is one thing that you did not expect when you went into your career as a pianist? What is one thing that you wish you kind of were mm-hmm. like, whoa, I didn't know this was going to be a part of this or... Wow, that's a great question. Ask me another one and my brain will work on that. If you have another. I have another something one. Something I didn't expect. Okay, my brain will work on that while you're asking. So uh, what is something that you wish you had known when you had first started, maybe? That's kind of the same question, kind of, It is kind of the same question, but this can mm. be regards to like vocal teaching or directing or. Hmm. I can ask you this. I wish... I wish I had known the importance of keeping in touch and keeping connected during the years that I was not pursuing piano on a professional level. Mm. So that's a regret that I have. Um, I said earlier that we had chosen to homeschool and that just really took me in a different direction and I put piano on the back burner, but I wish that I had kept in touch because I didn't realize the importance of networking and the importance of keeping keeping those connections. Um, so that's one. And then the other thing is the importance of listening. It isn't stressed in Western classical music like it is in pop and jazz studies. And, um, mm. and I wish that I had listened more to great artists. Um, so I am doing that now. <laughs> And trying to catch up, to use your phrase from earlier. Again, I don't know that you ever catch up. 
but you invest in forward. your trajectory. Yeah. yeah. It it is. Uh, I only use the term catch up because other other people have used it before. Mm-hmm. But it, it really you can't really catch up. It's more of just progressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and l- listening is something I have really invested in because there are so many great artists out there that have lived and have died and uh, stuff you've never even heard of before because it just goes under the radar. Right. Uh, there's so much classical pieces that I just don't know about. That's why I was so grateful for taking the uh, Connecting to class because uh, Dr. Bigley introduced me to the Mendelssohn mm-hmm. and um, his, I think, is it Mendelssohn or Schubert who has the Unfinished Eighth Symphony? I think Schubert's it might be Schubert. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it was, it was Schubert that I was like, glad to be introduced to because that, that piece just makes me feel something. It, it the, It's it's so big and it's so quiet at the same time, at least in, in the beginning. Right. Um, the lines that are in it are so just it has influenced me greatly as a composer. And so just having to listen to stuff that I would have never ever listened to in my entire life uh, for whatever reasons, mm-hmm. mostly because I didn't know it existed. Right. And having a vocabulary, knowing what you're aiming at, right? As mm-hmm. a composer, having a vocabulary of options, right? This exists as a category or an option, right? Yeah. Developing that vocabulary. Um, and then as a, you know, as a performing artist kind of knowing what you're aiming at if you're never listening if i'm a singer and i'm never listening to great singers i don't even have a concept for a sound in my head of what i could be aiming at mm-hmm. and if you aim at nothing you'll hit it every time so <laughs> for me to listen to great pianists and i'm also listening to great singers now because i'm focused on vocal coaching yeah uh so me um here's another question what are some of the mistakes that maybe you or you've seen other people make and how do we combat that? Or how, how do we, uh, how, what is something that you can say that, that prevent us from making, from other people making those same mistakes? Hmm. I think one mistake that a lot of students make, and that's kind of my world as mm-hmm. an educator, is to um, coast on talent to not invest in building skill. So talent can only really get you so far. And the person who's willing to get in the practice room, stay in the practice room, is who has less talent, honestly, to start with, is going to surpass the person with talent who doesn't practice. So practicing. Now, I've never personally struggled with that. I love to practice. Um, But that's a mistake that I see young artists making. There's a lack of diligence, a lack of discipline, um, and a desire to just be able to to just do it. Mm-hmm. Or if it's not fun, to not keep at it. For me, it's fun when I achieve a new skill. That's fun for me, and I achieve that new skill by practicing. So that's a big, that's I think a mistake that people make. Um, burning bridges is a mistake that some people make. Oh, for sure. Um, it's you can get your first job. But whether you'll get hired back is yet to be seen. So that's the goal, right? For so a musician, right? To get hired back. So and to have and then word of mouth to have your name passed on. So being a delightful person to work with is really important. That that's for the person who has the most talent and the most skill in the world, who stayed in the practice room and did the hard work. Right? They're getting hired, but what do they like to work with? So that's really important as well. And I think networking is, as I mentioned before, is um, 
that was a mistake that I made. Um, it's yeah, it's hugely important. Self promotion, all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, in this in this market, really, the gig economy, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I wish I had uh, really paid attention to was the investing in myself um, in regards to practicing, because you're right. As someone with uh, maybe a little, little less talent than you, if they put their, their heart and soul into it, they're going to surpass. Because at that point, it's skill for them. Right. It turns from talent to skill. Uh, and a lot of people can get by on talent, but if they're going to be something and, and go somewhere, they really got to invest in that talent to be, for it to become a skill that they know. And that's something I really wish I had worked on. And something I'm working on right now is just spending that time to invest in myself. And granted, I, I act like I'm, I'm past my prime, but I'm just I'm becoming just, in it. Just getting started, yeah. Uh, but it's still, it, imagine how further I would be had I uh, spent the four years doing seven hours a day or seven hours a week like we were supposed to. Minimum. <laughs> minimum, yeah, minimum. <laughs> I was more like 30 hours a week when I was undergrad. Right. Yeah. Granted, this isn't a conservatory. So. No, it's not. And we have I know. Everyone here is double for me. I know. It's so hard for you guys. Uh, along with that, though, I will say, yes, I've had the opportunity to traffic with world-class artists. And yes, I am pursuing a degree to perform at a really high level. But I really strongly believe that there's a place for everyone. Mm. Um, and so, and this kind of goes along with what you're saying. Like, there's levels of talent. There's levels of skill. And, um I became convinced of this when I was visiting family in a small town in Arizona. And one of the family members was a pianist. And she was giving a recital. And she was playing artist-level repertoire, but not at the artist-level tempi. They were under tempo. But she was playing a beautiful recital. And she had packed out this little church in this small town in Arizona. And my first thought, I'll just admit, my guilt, my guilty conscience says that was to be critical and say, these aren't even the right tempo, right? Mm. These are under tempo. Um, but then I looked around me at the people that she was, she was enriching their lives. She was bringing incredible music to their lives that they might not ever hear otherwise. They were being blessed by her performance and it really changed my mind it changed my heart and I thought there's a place for everyone Um, if your goal is to enrich the lives of others to bring beauty and goodness into your community um, you don't have to be playing at a world-class level Mm. you can do good work and um, yeah so I that's something else that I'm just passionate about Um, not all of our our students are gonna go on to you know, a world-class career, but they have something to offer that has value that's going to enrich their community. And I think that's really important to remember. That's awesome. Last question. Okay. What is one of the funniest or maybe worst things that's ever happened to you as a performer or conductor? Okay. Um, A funny and a worse for me. I mean, they're not, so the, the, it's kind of funny and worse. I was a student at Eastman, and I was practicing a piece for a trumpet player. And it was one of the flugelhorn pieces that there's two different accompanists, uh, two different accompaniments that have been arranged because they were originally for uh, wind ensemble. So they've been reduced for pianists. So the pianist is trying to play with their ten fingers all the instruments that are in 
the wind ensemble. <laughs> and there's an arrangement by Clark, and there's an arrangement by Hunsberger. And I was looking at both of them, and the Clark was much easier. It was more like boom, chunk, boom, chunk, boom, chunk, 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 with like a little melody line, very kind of pianistic. The Hunsberger arrangement was way more beautiful, mm -hmm. but really hard because he tried to fit more of the wind ensemble instruments into the Ten Fingers. And as I was practicing this, um, two gentlemen opened the door and popped their head into my practice room and said, oh, I hear you're playing the, whichever piece it was, which arrangement are you choosing? And I said, I think I'm leaning toward the Clark because the Hunsberg, Hunsberger arrangement just doesn't fall under my hands very well or doesn't lie under the hands, I think. I said, it doesn't lie under the hands. I probably thought I was being very official. Right. And the one gentleman turned to the other and said, well, you can't win them all. And it was David Efron and Donald Hunsberger oh, no. who had their offices right across the hall from where I was practicing. And, of course, I was just a stupid freshman pianist who didn't even know who the faculty were at that point. Um, that was really embarrassing. Um, not a brilliant moment, but he took it really well. And uh, oh, I probably so never funny. saw him again because I never played in any of his ensembles um, because I was a pianist. Um, there was also a moment in Titanic that was kind of a worst moment um, where I, I got lost. I don't remember exactly why or how I got lost um, and it was right in a really complex duet between the flute and the oboe, and it was mixed meter, and I, 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 which means I was changing from either a three pattern to a four pattern, or a four pattern to a two pattern, or a two pattern to a three pattern, and I, I made a mistake, and I lost my count, and they just kept going, and I just sort of kept beating time and they kept going and they all three of us our eyes were just as big as saucers like what's gonna happen and we got through it but I was pretty terrified and I counted like crazy the next time I got to that spot it's the worst thing to happen <laughs> would you thankfully they just kept going and playing where they thought that they were supposed to be and right. we got through it oh my goodness uh we have one of your pieces lined up excellent here. Okay. uh this is Psalm 91 by Matthew. Matthew Monticchio, who is an adjunct professor here at Lancaster Bible College. He did a music ed degree at Westchester, and then he got his composition degree at the Peabody Conservatory, which is another one of the top conservatories mm -hmm. of music in our country. And um, he works as a, an educator and a church musician, and he gigs with his jazz trio. That's cool. All over Lancaster County, and I think York County as well. Yes, he's a really fine musician. And he wrote this piece during the... I think it was during the pandemic, actually, during the shutdown, and sent it to us. So this is uh, yours and Dr. Bigley's mm -hmm. rendition of Mr. Matthew, what was the last name? Monticchio. Monticchio's mm -hmm. Psalm 91. This is My Refuge, My Fortress by Matt Monticchio. in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. O Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in all. 
was Psalm 91, uh, performed by Ms. Bigley and Dr. Bigley, by Matthew Monticchio. Monticchio. You have some upcoming uh, recitals? I do. Besides the operas that I'll be working on at Temple University next year, I have at least two recitals each semester. So one is a, a collaborative recital with three singers, and I just invited them each to choose about 15 to 18 minutes worth of music so I have a French art song set a Spanish art song set and an English one the English one is really interesting you might be um, interested in hearing it it's by Aaron Copeland who's an American composer and he set music to 12 of Emily Dickinson's poems and um, so it's really beautiful music and I'm I'm super excited about that set actually and and that's with a mezzo-soprano the French is a baritone and the Spanish is a a soprano from Colombia, so she's singing in her native tongue, which is always exciting for singers. Yeah. They just can bring something really special to that music when they connect to it on that level. Um, I'll be playing a final DMA recital with a baritone. Um, I'm actually working to find some instrumentalists because I would mm. like one of my recitals to be instrumental, but I haven't really met any instrumentalists because I'm in the vocal and opera department. Um, but I did find one violinist. Um, we'll do probably Beethoven or Schumann Sonata. And yeah, that's for this coming semester. I haven't really gotten to spring yet. Is there any anywhere that people can find these events or That's a good question. I I need to up my social media game and be advertising my performances. It's of course all on the Temple University events, mm. Boyer College of Music and Dance events page. But yeah, you, you've inspired me. I'll make sure I find a way. Yeah, that, that is something that, uh, that's been a recent conversation a lot at LBC is, okay, how are you going to market yourself? How are you mm-hmm. going to put your name out there? Because at least in this uh, area, there's a lot, a lot of musicians. Yes. So it's really hard to distinct yourself from anyone else where you know, there's like maybe 100 different pianists around here. Right. Uh, there's thousands of different singers around this area. Etc. So right. it, I I've learned the hard way that in order to get out there, and even as I granted, I'm not I'm nowhere near the level that you was you are in regards to piano or even some of the, my fellow gigging musicians nowhere near the level. But people like me because I I can read a chord sheet and I can improvise whenever I want to. Right. Uh, so definitely, yes, making a website or or even a web page, a web page where I post yeah. my upcoming events. Yeah. Right. And send out an occasional newsletter. Yeah, yeah I know. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I see other learn. artists doing it, and of course I enjoy theirs. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, well, with all that said, this has been The Story Podcast. You can follow us at facebook.com forward slash The Story Corey Rosen. That's C-O-R-Y-R-O-S-E-N. You can also search The Story Corey Rosen on all your favorite streaming platforms and find us there. We also have some merchandise if you'd like. We got stickers that have the logo on it. I'm showing it to the camera. Uh, it's the red neon letters saying the story. It should be. It's also going to be on the brick, brick background. We have the stickers and we have the hoodies that you can DM me about and pre-order. They'll be coming out in the fall with the logo on the front and the first 50 guests, including Miss Kendra Bigley. So if if you liked her, you can also check her out through the the events webpage at Temple University. I assume that's .edu. Yes, it's Boyer College of Music and Dance. Um, it's probably even easier. Boyer College events. Cool. Yeah. 
And with all that said, be sure to tune in tomorrow at 10, 10 o'clock. I have a, another guest coming on. This is would be a DJ Mast. He is a DJ around the area. He does local weddings, parties, other stuff. So if you want to hear what it's like to be a DJ in the local scene, be sure to check that out at 10.30 a.m. tomorrow. With all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your night. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.